You are listening to Church History with Pastor Steve Scoggins. These episodes were originally recorded in front of a live audience at First Baptist Church, Hendersonville, North Carolina. These episodes are abbreviated lectures to be used for the Church History course at Fruitland Baptist Bible College in Hendersonville, North Carolina. We hope you enjoy these episodes and are encouraged as well as enlightened by the content. I want to welcome you to the Church History course. I'm honored to be here to talk about something I love, I'm passionate about, and I hope you will love church history as much after you finish this course. And, and one of the reasons why Christians ought to love church history is if you love the Bible, you love history, because 70% of our Bible is history. It's the story of God's people, what God did in Israel, the mistakes they made, the things they did right. And the New Testament says that we should learn from that. Well, I want to tell you something, folks. The New Testament, the historical record ends somewhere around in the A.D. 60s, but God didn't stop moving. One of the things I love in the New Testament, in book Hebrews 11, it talks about the faith's hall of fame, all those folks like Abraham and Moses, how they stepped out in fame, faith for God. And then in Hebrews 12, 1, it says, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race set before us. And I, I picture that he's basically saying, there's David, there's Abraham, there's Moses, they're cheering you on. Well, I know they're there. But I also look up and I see Luther and I see Spurgeon and I see Moody. And so we're being cheered on by those who've gone before. Uh, in this course, we'll start our journey by looking at two issues tonight. We'll look at the persecution the early Christians went through in the Roman Empire. And then we'll also look at the way they battled the first major false teachings, heresy. So let me start with the persecution. Jesus and the New Testament writers warned many times that persecution was coming. I'll give you one example. Matthew 24, 9, Jesus said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. By the way, that means we're seeing it, that we'll be hated in the United States of America for his name. So the first state-sponsored persecution happened under Nero. Nero was not a good man. He went to the Senate and he asked for permission to tear down about one third of Rome because he wanted to rebuild it gloriously in his honor. And he was turned down. They said it cost too much. Shortly after that, a fire was started and it got farther out of control than what he would have wanted. And most of Rome was burnt to the ground. Many lives were lost. It was devastating. And so the people figured out who probably did it, Nero. And he had to find a scapegoat. So what he did was he picked the group that he felt was the most unpopular group in that day and time to blame them and to, to punish them. So he said the Christians did it. Now, what he did was he took them and he would use them for entertainment in, in Rome to be eaten by the wild animals. He took them. This is horrible, but he took them and he put them on torches, put tar on them, and he literally for weeks lit the streets of Rome at night with human torches just because they were the scapegoat and he was putting them down. Well, why was it that Christians were so unpopular that Nero would pick them? Let me give you reasons because I think it applies to our day as well. The first reason why Christians were so unpopular that he would have picked them is because Christians refused to be pluralists. Now, let me explain what that word means. Pluralism basically says everybody's right. The only thing wrong is to say that one is better than the other. 
And Rome really felt like it was the most tolerant empire that had ever risen. They said, we, we give everybody religious freedom. Go worship any gods you want, but you're required one day a year that you had to, in a token way, worship the Roman gods. Later on, it became you had to stand before a bust of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Well, Christians wouldn't do that. We could never call a man our Lord when Jesus is our Lord. We could never worship the Roman gods. And so what would happen is if you were turned in, they would force you to stand before a bust of Caesar. They would put a sword in your back and they say, you say these words, Caesar is Lord or you die. And what Christians did was they substituted it and said, Jesus is Lord. That's why in 1 Corinthians it says in chapter 12, nobody can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit empowers them to do that. That's not just words. That means you said it and you died. So we would not agree that everybody's right. We said there is one way, one true God, one true Savior. Secondly, Christians met in secrecy and they did not allow non-believers to worship with them. So since non-believers weren't coming... They were spreading all kind of rumors about what was going on when the churches got together on Sunday night. They said, you know what? I hear those Christians are cannibals. Because did you hear? Every time they get together, they eat somebody's flesh and they drink somebody's blood. And you know what they are? They're having orgies down there because they called their Sunday night time where they had a meal together. The Christians called it a love feast. And he said, you know what that means. <laughs> wink, wink, love feast. They're having an orgy. And some of them said it's incest because they're told to love your brother and love your sister. I mean, it's amazing. But one of the charges that they had was Christians were accused of being atheists. Because everybody else in the Roman Empire, if you wanted to see their God, they would say, come here, look at my wooden statue in the corner. That's my God right there. Or we can show you a temple. That's where we worship our God right there. Christians had no temple. They had no idols. And so they accused them of being atheists. Another reason why they were uh, persecuted, third reason is Christians were upsetting the social order. One third of the Roman Empire was the people were slaves. Uh, women in the Roman Empire could not speak to anyone in public, could not go out with an escort. Uh, they had no rights. And then you have a revelation, revolutionary verse like Galatians 3.28. In Christ Jesus, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. And what was happening is even though uh, slaves and free people couldn't mingle when they got to church. They were brothers and sisters. Men and women couldn't speak to each other, but they got to church. They were brothers and sisters. It was kind of like if you saw the movie The Help and the way that uh, African-Americans were prejudiced against in the 60s. Can you imagine if a church decided we're going to announce to everybody, anybody's welcome, come right on in? That would have been what would have happened, and it was causing controversy. A fourth reason why they were hated was because the contrast between the moral lives of the Christians and the immoral lives of the rest of the Roman Empire made the Romans uncomfortable. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. That first century, that, that Roman Empire was a filthy world full of homosexuality, full of temple prostitution. You go to church and you join yourself to a prostitute. Can you imagine what you did the rest of the week? It was a filthy place. And then all of a sudden you've got one pocket of people that they keep their word, they're faithful to their wives. Uh, all the, and, you know, if everybody's doing it, you feel better. 
As long as there's someone who's not doing it, that makes you, un- it makes you uncomfortable when they're not. And then the fifth reason they were unpopular was because Christians were winning converts and therefore emptying the pagan temples. We see that in Acts 19. Uh, in Ephesus, they had the huge temple to Diana and all of a sudden sales were dropping. They had these craftsmen that were making little idols to sell to the tourists and they weren't selling them anymore. And so they caused a riot and they wanted to persecute the Christians because they were stealing our people. So what would happen from then on? There was a ground down, a precedent set that Christians could be put to death. The specific way that Christians were put to death was not something that happened all over the Roman Empire. There were only two empire-wide persecutions. I'll talk about them in just a minute. But what basically happened was this. If you had a gung-ho governor, he could go out and look for Christians and force them to say Caesar is Lord and die. But most governors just live and let live. And what happened to the Christians, even though they were legally required to show up and say Caesar is Lord, they just didn't go. But you could get turned in. And your neighbor, if your neighbor didn't like you and he knew you were a Christian, could turn in and say, he didn't go say Caesar is Lord. And that would mean your death. And so the way that most Christians died was through being turned in. Uh, example of that was a young woman named Vivia Perpetua and her, her nursemaid was a slave named Felicity. They were sisters in Christ. Vivia was nursing a young infant. Felicity was pregnant. They were both turned in. Vivia was the daughter of one of the wealthiest noble people in Carthage. And the truth of the matter is the governor of Carthage did not want to put her to death, but she refused to deny Jesus. And so he allowed her father to come in and plead with her. And he came to her and says, please don't do this. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord and you can go home to your little girl. He said, dad, dad, I can't do this. I cannot betray my Lord. And so the next time he came to visit her, he brought the baby girl. He said, are you going to leave this baby girl alone? And she actually wrote a letter that was preserved to explain to her daughter when she got old enough why mama had to die for Jesus. They waited until Felicity's baby was born. They put them in the arena. They gave a great testimony that day. They brought in a wild bull to gore them. And so they died out there, but they glorified Jesus till their last breath. And Fox's Book of Martyrs says that the governor of Carthage became a Christian watching their death. So that's the way most of the persecution happened. But there were two times when it happened all the way across the empire. One was under the emperor Decius, and that happened between 250 and 251. And the other was with Diocletian from 302 to 303. Now, why did Decius do a a empire-wide persecution? Well, 250 AD was the 1,000th anniversary of the founding of Rome. But Rome wasn't what it used to be. Had high inflation. Uh, It had crumbling facilities. The Goths were threatening them on the border. Uh, They were they, they they were not as strong as they were. And Decius said, the reason why we're weakening is because we've abandoned the gods that made us strong. And so he ordered the Christians to be put to death to try to restore Rome to its glory. Diocletian, who came to power, wanted to kill all the Christians himself. But he added, not only did he want the Christians arrested, he wanted all of their, quote, holy books confiscated. 
So he ordered them to find the Christians, put them to death, get their holy books. And what that made the Christians finalize, the Christians had to decide what are our holy books that I can't give up? And what, uh, for instance, I couldn't give up my Bible. And as much as I love David Jeremiah, David is gone. <laughs> you know, if they want that, I'm not going to die for David Jeremiah, but I'll die for the Apostle Paul in the writings here. And so they did that. Ironically, uh, he set up a monument in 303. says, here lies the ashes of the last Christian holy book. He thought he'd wiped out the Bible, but evidently he missed a few. In 313, the next emperor, Constantine, converted to Christianity. In 323, he made Christianity not only a legal religion, it became the most popular religion in Rome. So what I want to do as I close this section is talk to you about how Christians responded to persecution. Number one, many people were won to Christ by the public witness of these martyrs. We talked about the governor of Carthage coming to Christ through Vivia's testimony. Number two, a new form of Christian writing occurred. It, it was called the apologists. Now, when you hear the word apologists from the Greek, that does not mean, oh, we're so sorry we offended y'all, Rome. The word apologia is the word for defense. And so if you read the words of Justin Martyr or Tertullian or others who were apologists, what you'll find is they didn't do what Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel do in our day and time. They simply explained Christianity. We're not harmful to y'all. We're not a danger to the Roman Empire. We're not cannibals. You know, this is what we believe. And they just, so that was what they did. They basically explained Christianity. But one of the negative impacts was because as Christians were martyred during, during Decius, uh, persecution, almost every senior pastor of every large town was put to death. The easiest people to find if you're looking for martyrs is the senior pastor of a town, a bishop. So because they became so respected after they died, there were Christians who were actually turning themselves in so they could become a martyr. So the early church had to set down as a decree that to seek martyrdom was actually the sin of suicide. But in spite of all that, Christianity grew. Why did Christianity grow? Let me give you four reasons before we leave the subject. In the midst of that persecution, Christianity grew, number one, because of the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about selling a good experience. We're talking about the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit to convict and to convince and draw people to Christ. Number two, Christianity grew because the gospel meets our deepest needs, our needs for forgiveness, our needs for eternal life. Folks, there's no other religion on this planet that will give assurance to its followers that they could put their heads on their pillows tonight and know their sins are forgiven, and know they have a place in heaven. Only those who are Christians have that kind of assurance. It meets our deepest needs. But the moral lives drew people to Christ. When you've got a filthy empire, and they look out, and they have, they can't keep homes together, and you see husbands and wives that are stable and love each other. You see people that are trustworthy when you can't trust anybody out there in the pagan world. That, that very contrast began to draw people to Christ. But here's an interesting one in light of the more recent pandemic. I told you that a worldwide persecution began in 250 AD. In 251, a plague swept through the Roman Empire that lasted till 256. That's five years of a plague. I'll tell you how devastating it was. 
In, in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, the largest city in Egypt at that time, 5,000 people every day died of this plague. That was true all across the empire. So if you had any wealth, you left the cities. If somebody was sick, you put them out on the streets. But what Christians did was they didn't leave. They stayed. They took them in. They cared for them. They caught the plague and they died. And that testimony of standing by people in that pandemic won the, the respect and the hearts of the people of the Roman Empire. Well, Satan tried to use persecution from the outside to stop Christianity. But he has another strategy that he usually keeps these two ongoing. If he can't destroy you from the outside, he's going to destroy you from the inside by bringing in false teachings and heresies to confuse and corrupt the gospel. So what we find in the New Testament is already these New Testament authors were fighting against heresies. The book of Galatians is against the heresy of the Judaizers. There were people who said, in order to go to heaven, you've got to be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul says, no, no, no. And he attacks that strongly. And even the one we're about to look at, which is called Gnosticism, you can see the beginning of it. And, and John attacks that in 1 John. And I'll show you that in just a minute. But the first major heretical Group. The first major heresy was a group called the Gnostics. And that's a word from the Greek that means knowledge. And they were people who basically set up their churches, their cults. And they said, Jesus passed on to us some secret knowledge you can't get at your church. If you want to go deeper than what they are, come here and we'll give you the secret knowledge. Can you see how that was attractive? Well, what the Gnostics had done is they had taken Greek philosophy of that, of that day and time and, com, and combined it with Christianity. And I'm going to do my best in a quick way to explain Greek philosophy. The Greeks believed that all matter is evil, this world is evil, uh, that anything you can see or touch, that's evil, and that it, the, the, a pure God would not have created this world. So they said there was a string of gods that came from the highest God. And one of those lesser gods was the God that created this world because a pure God would never have created this. And, and you think, well, how can they say that this world is evil? Well, let me ask you something. If you were in Canton and a flood raced through and killed folks and wiped away everything you've got, or if you were in uh, a place where a wildfire like has raged recently. I read about 800 homes in one area that, that was destroyed by a wildfire or a hurricane came or an earthquake that would kill people. You could sit here and say, this world's not right. This world is not something that's good. So they came to that. So what the Christians did in responding to that was they came up with a statement of faith that several of the lines, and I'll just mention one, targeted this teaching that the true God did not create this world. It was a lesser evil God. And it was something that we now call the Apostles' Creed. What we have is longer than what they had, but it was their confession of faith. And before somebody could be baptized, they had to say it. And it starts off this way. I believe in God, the Father of heaven, maker of heaven and earth. And they believe that God is good and God created this earth. Now, because they taught that all matter is evil, the body is evil, what they said was that Jesus didn't really have a body. He only seemed to have a body. So basically what they would have said, you've heard that, that uh, poem, Footprints in the Sand? They said that when Jesus walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he left no footprints. 
You couldn't have touched him because he only appeared to have a body, which meant he couldn't really have died for us because he didn't have a real body. So they said the way that you become pure is through knowledge and also through neglecting anything that's material. So what this did, now please understand this. What this did was this brought a new element into Christianity as, as, as this corruption began to take more and more hold of us. It's something, it's a big word, called asceticism. A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. Asceticism is the idea that I can become more pleasing to God. I can become more holy the more I neglect my body, the more I give up things. Uh, that's where we got things like the priest had to be single. That's where they came up with things like Lent, where you become holy by for the 40 days preceding Easter. You give something up like chocolate. And so basically what they said was salvation comes through learning these secret truths and through giving up things and neglecting your body. Now, that was exactly opposite of the biblical point of view. Can I tell you what the Bible's point of view is? First uh, Timothy 4 says every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. The difference between the Greeks, and this is how the Greek thought is infiltrated into us, versus the Bible perspective, the Hebrews perspective is this. When you go out to eat and somebody's about to go go ahead and dig into their salad or eat their roll that was put there and somebody around the table says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you eat that. We haven't said the blessing yet. If we don't say that blessing, you could get sick. So we got we to bless that or, or it could be bad for you. And the implication is that if I don't bless this and ask God to change it, it's going to get me. The Jews did not bless the food they blessed the God who gave them the food. Remember what it said in Genesis? After every day of creation, God said, and it is good. It is good. It is good. It ends with it was very good. So what they do is they lift up their heads toward heaven and they bless God. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us bread from the earth. And now in this Greek thought that came in, you give up chocolate for Lent. Can you think of anything more ungodly than that? But if we had the true thought of 1 Timothy 4, you would say, God, I come to you and offer sincere praise because you invented chocolate. You are good. So that's the difference. And that's how it got corrupted. So how did they defend themselves against these who were saying, we've got secret knowledge passed down by Jesus. This is how they did it. The main defense was they appealed to a teaching called apostolic succession. That when the first apostles, and they could go around to every major church in the Roman Empire and say, we know who the apostle was that started it, who was his first designated successor. Irenaeus in 202 AD, that's a long ways after the apostles, said, I can tell you in every church the lineage of everybody all the way back to an apostle. And what they said was this, they're telling you they have something from Jesus. Our church was founded by Paul. In, in Ephesus. Our church was founded by John Mark in Alexandria or whoever it might be. These folk walk with Jesus and they don't have anything like that. And so they appealed to that apostolic succession. They also began to say, if you want to know who is right now, now let me tell you what they didn't have. They did, they couldn't go to the bookstore and buy a Bible. In the first century, the Bible was still being written. And even till the printing press, 
There was no affordable way that you could bind books and have somebody carry it around. So how do you tell somebody that this is wrong doctrine? So they said, here's what you've got to do. That's a, that's a group of heretics. We would call it a cult. What you need to do is go back to the established churches, the churches that were established by the apostles themselves, and you trust the bishop, the senior pastor. You do not trust these heretics. And so what happened is Ignatius basically said, nobody can do anything in the church without the bishop's approval. No Lord's Supper is a, is a true Lord's Supper unless the bishop is celebrating or somebody he authorizes. He says, where the bishop is present, let the congregation gather just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the church. Without the bishop's supervision, no baptisms or love feasts are permitted. So in other words, they're saying these heretics are saying they have the truth. Go listen to your pastor. But they're beginning to center on the pastors. You're beginning to have a change in Christianity where it's becoming centered on bishops and, and priests instead of on Jesus and on the word of God. It came to the point where Cyprian once said, Outside of the church, there is no salvation. He said he cannot have God as his father who doesn't have the church as his mother. So how did they respond? One, they came up with a statement of faith. We call it the Apostles' Creed. And everybody before they were baptized had to learn these truths because you couldn't carry a Bible around. So how do I know if I'm listening to a heretic? Are they teaching that in a way that goes along with those basic facts? Uh, they, they would say, go look at the bishops, especially in those churches that were found by the original apostles. But then they also began to say, one of the ways that we can be apostolic is to know exactly which of the writings were truly of the apostles. Because these Gnostics were writing forgeries with their teachings, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary. And the early church knew they weren't written into the 100s. And so they said, here, these are the four Gospels that have the fingerprint of the apostles. These are the letters that truly came from an apostle. So they began to develop what we now call the canon of Scripture. Canon means measuring stick. That you can measure what a preacher is saying or what a teacher is saying by what you find in these holy books. So that's how they did it. But before I leave this first three centuries and thinking of how brave they were in the midst of persecution, thinking of how strong they were in standing for the truth and standing up against heresy, there were some changes that began to happen so that by the time you get to Constantine, Christianity is no longer the pure faith that we read in the New Testament. Christianity was so simple. It was John 3.16 and house groups. That was basically Christianity. But they began, at least by 150, to say there's more to the Lord's Supper than a symbol that actually brings salvation to you. There's more to baptism than just water. Baptism actually washes away the sins. And, and the only ones that can do it is somebody who's in the approved church with the authority of the head pastors. You can see how this is leading to the Roman Catholic Church eventually because it takes an approved pastor and it takes these magical sacraments to bring salvation. Uh, oh, that breaks my heart to see how quickly we left the simplicity and the truth. And part of it will be that as more and more pagans came into the church, they brought more and more of their pagan practices into the church. The pagan temples had pomp and ceremony and robes and such. So now Christians want to do, that's the way we've always worshipped, they'll do it in church. The pagan temples all had a major female goddess. And so a lot of these pagans that came in began praying to Mary and honoring Mary as more than just an obedient Christian. And so you began to see these developments that caused Christianity to become corrupted. 
Well, we're coming to the close of this first lecture, so I want to give you your assignment now. Your assignment is basically twofold. I want to a, a, a approximately 500-word essay that you will submit to me online. And in that essay, I want you to examine two things. Are there similarities between what we're experiencing in America as Christians and what the sentiment of the Roman Empire was toward the first Christians that caused them to be persecuted? How do you compare the same persecution that arose against Christians with the attitudes that we're facing now? And then secondly, they had to fight against false teaching and they came up with their strategies. Are there things that we can learn from their fight against false teaching that will help us because we're in a day and time? when false teachers are so prevalent in our day. So you do that, and I'll look forward to reading your essays.